Hey everyone, Jeremy L. Jones here, author of Ruins of Empire. So we got a tiny problem here at Ruins of Empire HQ. Some of you might know that producer Sean helped me record this free podcast novel, but when it was done, there was nothing left for him to do but wander the world like David Carradine in Kung Fu, without as much autoerotic asphyxiation. The point is, we're ready to kick off the second season of Ruins of Empire, which means I need to get producer Sean off the road and back into the recording studio. So to help with that, I've got the second book of the Ruins of Empire series on pre-release on Kickstarter. There, you have the chance to get a signed hardback or paperback copy of Templum Venerus, or you can get Saturnius Mons and Templum Venerus together, or you can just throw a dollar in the pot. Everyone who contributes gets their name in the acknowledgments section of Templum Venerus, and will prove that people actually give a crap about this little project and producer Sean's role in it. I'm still not going to pay him, just to be clear, but I think the idea that I could might just be enough to get him to suffer through another recording session. You are listening to Ruins of Empire, Saturnius Mons, book one of the Ruins of Empire project a serial podcast novel by Jeremy L. Jones, read by the author and Tyler Murphy. The story so far. Althea and Kronos set out to find Vago, currently being held captive by the Perfinduloi. They carried information with them that would seriously damage the relationship between them and the corporation. But on their way, they were attacked by a group of marines. Vago, unaware if Althea and Kronos were alive or dead, had no choice but to challenge Sergeant Carr to hand-to-hand combat to prove his innocence to the Perfinduloi. Chapter 19 Any person or government that attacks everyone out of fear of being surrounded by enemies soon finds our suspicions correct. From the Fall, The Decline and Failure of 21st Century Civilization by Martin Rath Vago found himself back in the wide clearing outside the ancient derelict ship, surrounded by a circle of yelling, chanting, and cheering Perfinduloi people. Vago focused on the chants and yells in the Titanian language. It sounded like a thousand people speaking in tongues. They shook their fists and danced in little circles while their furs whirled around them. It was as if he and Sergeant Carr were surrounded by a pack of tall, hairy demons crying for their damnation. Carr was on the opposite side of the circle. He took off his blue corporation-issued coat, stripped down to the tight-fitting black arrow suit, and boxed the air to warm up his muscles. Every once in a while, he'd flash a menacing grin at Vago, like a cat sizing up a three-legged mouse. Vago followed suit, taking off his white coat and shoulder holster, and placing them in a pile just beyond the edge of the circle. There was a ruddy stain of mostly dried blood, about the size of a softball where the shrapnel hit him. The haze dulled the pain, but as he stretched, he could feel a tugging or pulling on the wound. It was useful in a way. He could focus on that to keep his mind grounded. Halifaco stepped into the middle of the circle and gave some kind of grand speech. Something with big inflections and wild hand gestures. The crowd worked themselves up, getting more and more manic with every word. Vigo got the impression that the Perfinduloi leader spent a decent portion of his life haranguing the masses. When he was done, he walked over to Vago and pressed his palm to the Martian's forehead, 
May the company grant you strength, Vago. He crossed the circle and did the same to Carr. After that, he joined the rest of the spectators gathered in the circle. Just like that, the fight was on. Carr walked to the middle of the circle, and Vega went to meet him. As soon as Vega raised his fists, Carr launched forward with a jab. Vega stepped back and slapped it away. Carr repeated the jab, and, again, Vega slapped it away and followed with a right cross. Carr staggered back a moment and launched forward with a flurry of punches. Vega barely had time to react before a punch connected with his cheek and sent him sprawling to the mud. Somewhere just beyond the haze, he felt his jaw throbbing. The crowd yelled, clapped, and danced even more as Vago got to his feet. He locked eyes with Sergeant Carr and put up his hands. During that first volley, Carr might have been sizing him up. Or maybe he was just playing the crowd. This time, he went for Vago's weakest point. He got close enough for Vago to throw a couple of short jabs. As soon as he did, Carr stepped to the right and landed a firm punch right in his shrapnel wound. Vago felt something sharp, scrape and tear against something soft, somewhere in his guts. Lights flashed in his head. He dropped his hands to cover his wound and screamed like a man unhinged. Carr landed three more punches, two to the gut and one to the face, and Vago fell back into the mud. Maybe the punch pushed the little piece of metal farther in. Maybe something vital was ripped to shreds and he was going to bleed out right there. Either way, the pain was excruciating. It kept his mind on this world before, but now it was like focusing on the sun at the height of noon, too intense to manage for long. So he let his mind slide away. Then he was standing outside his own body. He watched Sergeant Carr raise his fist and parade around the ring in victory while the crowd cheered. Halifaco ran into the circle and knelt beside Vago's body. Vago tried to will his body to get up and fight. He screamed curses inside his own head. Get up, you money own que boss, get a day. Get up and fight. His body pushed itself off the ground, got its feet underneath him, and stood. Carr waved his fists and shouted at the crowd. He didn't notice that Vega was up and staggering toward him. Vega's body lurched into such a wild, clumsy attack, it was somewhere between a roundhouse and a windmill punch, that the soldier would have seen it coming had he been paying attention. As it was, Vago's fist managed to connect with the back of Carr's neck. The punch did little more than make Carr angry. He turned and threw a series of punches at Vago's body. In this state, Vago didn't have fine muscle control, not enough to defend himself. Carr might as well have been tenderizing a huge slab of meat in a butcher shop. When Vago's body finally fell, it just crumpled backwards, as if some unseen force holding it up ceased to exist. Vago tried to wheel his body up again and managed to get into a sitting position. But Carr kicked Vago back to the ground, put his knee on his chest, and started pummeling his head. When he was done, Vago's face looked like it had been sucked into a plasma jet engine. As Carr got up and walked away, he tried to wheel his body up one more time, but it wouldn't budge. He felt his mind slipping into a deeper haze. The yells and chants of the crowd, the dark green foliage and the black mud all faded into white. Then, he was back in his apartment in Rio. Everything around him was fuzzy shades of white and gray, but he somehow knew where he was, as if in a dream. He was laying down, naked, while another body, just a different colored blur among the rest, rode on top of him. Then he heard a voice. It was sweet, lilting, and screaming in ecstasy.
It was Althea, and she was screaming his name. Vago. Pieces of the memory started to come into focus. The bright city lights streaming in through the window. The creaking of old bed springs, and Althea, in all her glory, tossing her fiery red hair back as she closed her eyes. Oh, Vago. As far as memories go, this was a good one to end his life on. It was the last perfect night Vago could remember. After that, everything went so horribly wrong that his death on some godforsaken planet was inevitable. Althea's voice changed from the breathy squeal of sexual ecstasy into something harsh and urgent. Vago! The memory started to fade, even as he tried to hold on to it. The fine details he managed to pick out faded away. Vago! New sounds filled his surroundings, like a hundred people all talking and shouting at once. It was as if he'd been dropped into the middle of an angry mob. Vago, damn it! Come back to me! He opened his eye. The other was swelled shut, to see Althea looking down at him. Her expression bordered on panic, but it softened when he met her eyes. Althea helped him to a sitting position. Jesus, Vago, what the hell were you thinking? I was waiting for you, Vago slurred. Or it's just stalling for time. With your face? Come on, let's get you up. Vigo winced as Althea pulled him to his feet. In the battle, I got in the side. I saw it. It's not life-threatening. But you risk bleeding out and sepsis if I try to do anything here. We'll get you somewhere safe first. Once Vega was on his feet, he saw what all the commotion was. The Perfinduloi gathered around while Kronos held a black disc-shaped device in his hands. Lights shot from all angles and created a holographic map of the refineries hovering over the heads of the entire crowd. As you can see, Kronos explained to Halifaco standing nearby, refining operations are still in progress. If anything, they are larger than ever, but storage tanks are not filling up. I will show you why. Carr was on his knees, with both hands bound behind him. Two Perfinduloi men stood on either side, holding him there. He struggled and yelled, This is insane! Halifaco! Don't tell me you buy this nonsense! The map overhead fell to the ground, causing some of the forest people to duck and cover like there was a mountain coming down on them. But instead, they found themselves surrounded by translucent images of tanks and pipes and pumping equipment. These tanks here, said Kronos, pointing at a set of conical tanks that towered over the assembled crowd. They hold intermediate products. Ethane, methane, propane. Karna's people have bypassed the system. They are stealing from these tanks as we speak. Carr tried to stand up. Lies! I'm telling you, this is all a cheap light show to make you slaves to these people. Vago stood up with Althea's help. Slaves, huh? Rich. Alifaco. Why don't you ask this upstanding man right here if these visions are not true? Why don't we all go and look? I'm sure Carr could arrange a tour to prove the honorable intentions of his people. Halifaco regarded Vega for a moment, then marched up to Carr. Speak, then. Show us what your people are doing there. Carr looked panicked. His eyes darted from Halifaco to Vega to Cronus and back again. I can't do that. There's security concerns and threats of sabotage. We can't allow... Carr's words were cut off by Halifaco's blow to the side of the head. I have heard enough. Withdraw your people now. Carr just looked up at Halifaco at a complete loss. Let me help you out here, slurred Vago. You want the refineries? You want them shut down for good? Then they ain't the ones to do it. The Houston and the Arbanoi are ready to talk, added Althea. They knew understand the danger of outsiders. 
They want to help you expel them. Halifaco nodded. We will go then. Bring that one with us, he said, motioning to Carr. He may yet be useful in the negotiations. They were back, trudging through that cursed forest. Kronos took a few deep breaths from the breather. He didn't need it as much. That was good. He could breathe the air now with limited assistance. Still, the forest unnerved him. It was a place of strange sounds and things always moving just beyond sight. In his imagination, it was a place where life was in a constant battle for survival. It was a place where everything could be divided into two categories, predators or prey, and being in one category did not necessarily negate being in the other. The company he kept didn't help his anxiety at all. There was Vago, of course, but there was something wrong. Just like when they first approached the city walls, he seemed completely unaware of where he was. He hardly spoke, and, when he did, most of it was slurred and disjointed to the point of incomprehension. Lucid moments were infrequent and brief. Most of the time he stared off into space as if his mind was somewhere else. Althea had his arm around her and helped him walk. Then there was the rest of the group, Halifaco and his pack of savages. They were like something out of a strange Neolithic nightmare. Most had scars, and many were still wounded from whatever horrors this world had put them through. They all marched straight ahead with a look of pure murder in their eyes. They were all just another item on the list of predators and prey, and they looked determinedly predatory. His thoughts went back to the pyramid and the treasure trove of information stored within. Never mind the strange correlation between the refineries, the computer, and the indecipherable code between them. There were records from the colony before the fall, Business reports, personal communications, ship manifests. He'd just begun to scratch the surface of the priceless knowledge that was hidden there. Kronos, said Althea, straining under Vago's weight. I don't think the cooperation will bother us at the moment. Call Althea and tell her to get the Houston and bring him to the city gates. Tell her the Perfenduloi leader is ready to make an alliance against the outsiders. An alliance, thought Kronos. Great. An alliance meant another war and another war put the precious data in danger yet again. During the original battle, Kronos heard the war of what he later learned were small railguns. The sound of projectiles screaming at near light speed and collapsing buildings echoed through the pyramid. He started downloading what he could at that point. He didn't know what it was, but he would preserve it. But there were terabytes, maybe even petabytes of data on those ancient drives. It could take years to download and store it all. But all it would take was one stray projectile, and another piece of human history would disappear forever. Kronos, did you hear me? asked Althea. Of course. I'm sorry, said Kronos, pulling up his sleeve to activate his arrow's display. There was static, and Easter's voice came over the earpiece. Kronos, what happened? You disappeared from my tracker. It was an ambush. Corporation Marines. We survived and got away, and we rescued Vago. He's hurt, but he will live. That is good. What about the Perfenduloi? How do they react to the information we brought them? Kronos stole a glance at Carr. He had his hands bound and two ropes tied around his neck. A pair of soldiers carried the other ends like a leash. I suppose that depends on your perspective. The leader of the Perfenduloi wants to talk to the Houston. He's ready to make peace at the city gates. I will make sure he is there. Be careful. 
Kronos took a couple of deep breaths from the breather. Be careful. The words seemed like a punchline of a cruel joke. Careful wouldn't have them at the mercy of sociopath in some disease-ridden forest. Careful wouldn't have them on this moon in the first place. Of course, nobody forced him to come to Titan. That was his decision, and one that he was regretting. They arrived at the tree line in front of the gates after about thirty minutes. The planes in between them and the massive wooden doors still bore all the scars of war. Colorful birds circled over the bodies of Perfunduloi, Corporation Marines, and Urbanoi. Smoke rose from two sizable craters near the trees. Besides the scavengers taking what they wanted from the field, the whole scene had an unreal stillness and silence to it. Across the field, a group of about twenty people waited outside the gate. Althea tried to shake Vago awake, but he just stared ahead, glassy-eyed and unresponsive. Kronos, see if Aether is with him. Try to organize a meeting that won't get anyone killed. Kronos activated the communicator on his aerosuit. Isra, are you standing by the gates of the city? I am. Is that you I see near the tree line? Yes. I have spoken to the Houston. He and I will meet you, Althea, Vago, and the Perfunduli leader near the center of the field. Our respective forces will keep their distance to ensure security on both sides. Kronos relayed the message to Althea, who told Halifaco. He consulted with his men and agreed. They marched onto that battlefield alone, with Althea still helping Vega walk and Halifaco leading the way with a kind of eager rage. The Hewson was in full ceremonial dress when they met. His short, thin frame almost dripped with colorful cloth and brilliant jewels. He was surrounded by a group of his soldiers, one in particular Kronos vaguely recognized, a squat woman with a hard stone-like expression. There was a large, ruddy stain on the front of her coat, the mark of yet more killing in the past. There was never going to be an end of this cycle, Kronos realized. People would be wounded, or see friends or family killed, only to come back and exact revenge on the perceived perpetrators. The Houston bowed towards Halifaco, and Isra spoke first. We would ask that these proceedings be carried out in the language of the Companio, if that is all right. Halifaco nodded solemnly. I will agree to that. The Houston pulled up the sleeves of his robe so that his hands were visible and held them out to Halifaco. Your people have been lost to us for many years, Perfendulo. Are you and your people ready to repent for your many transgressions? Halifaco's eyes burned hotter. False leader. It is you who betray Companio by carrying on in this holy place. You dishonored their memory by trying to replace them. The Houston started to retort, but Isra cut in. Gentlemen, this is not productive. There is clearly a long history between your respective peoples with wrongs on both sides. You must put them aside for now and work for the good of both your peoples. Can you do that? The Houston stiffened. Your most recent transgression. You allied with outsiders attacked our city. Will you repent for that, at least? Halifaco calmed down. That was a mistake. I will admit, I will repent for that. The Houston closed his eyes. Your words are wise, but I fear they are not genuine. Give me a sign that your relationship with those people is finished. Halifaco nodded. That is fair. I would like to bring some people forward, with your permission. The Houston nodded, and Halifaco signaled his men back at the tree line. A moment later, two Perfunduloi men walked forward with Sergeant Carr still bound and being led by the neck. When they arrived, 
they set him on his knees and undid the leashes around his throat. Halifaka walked behind Carr and addressed the Houston. Do you know this man? He is the one who came to us after we found the weapons. He was the one who provided the weapons that damaged the city walls. The Houston eyed the soldier, kneeling in the mud in his corporation blues. Is this true? Are you that man? Carr looked the Houston right in the eye. If there was any fear in him, it was hidden behind a thick wall of defiance. I am. What do you want to do about that? Before anyone could speak, Halifaco pulled a long knife from his fur cloak. With one quick motion, as impersonal as cutting a slab of meat, Halifaco brought the knife to Sergeant Carr's throat and sliced it open. Blood poured from the wound. It spurted on the grass near where the Houston and Isra stood watching with stony impassiveness. Carr grabbed at his neck in a desperate attempt to stop the bleeding. The look of horror on his face burned itself into Kronos's mind. This man who, moments before, seemed to hold no fear of anything, suddenly looked more terrified than anything Kronos had ever seen. He fell forward, gurgling blood. Nobody, not even Althea, moved to help him. She just turned her head and muttered something under her breath. He was a bastard anyways, Vago slurred. It was the most he said or did since they left the camp. A few moments later, Sergeant Carr was dead. Kronos knew he wasn't a good person. The specifics were fuzzy, but he didn't deserve this. Not in this place. Not like that. The Houston watched and clapped his hands together. I accept your demonstration. Let us talk. Halifaco sheathed his knife inside his cloak. Jis, let us talk. The group turned and walked toward the city. Kronos turned around one last time. One of the large birds that had been circling overhead landed on Carr's head and started nibbling on his ear. You have been listening to The Ruins of Empire, Saturnius Mons, the first book of The Ruins of Empire Project. The Ruins of Empire podcast was written by Jeremy L. Jones and produced by Sean Vincent. Cover art was by Nick Martin. Music was Broken Reality by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons 3.0 license. After that, everything went so horribly wrong that his inevitable death on some godforsaken planet was inevitable. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs>